Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Indubitably with your hosts, Kelly. Hey. Now you're supposed to introduce me. Oh, and also Josh. Yeah, we usually introduce ourselves. I thought we would mix it up today. I don't like surprises. And there you go. Starting off the show with one. Oh, okay. Speaking of surprises, I have a question for you. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> you like to grill me. I've, I've noticed a pattern. Mm-hmm. What did you do for the holiday that took place over the last two days? The holiday that took place over the last two days? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very big. I don't know what holiday you're referencing. I'll give you a clue. I bought a battery. Are you talking about Prime Day? <laughs> yeah, Amazon Prime. I don't have Amazon Prime anymore. I know. I figured you would not. <laughs> <laughs> I celebrate Amazon Prime Day. What kind of battery did you get? Like one of those little ones they put in the laser pointers for the cats? Because you probably could have gotten like that anywhere. So I didn't think about that. It does need a new battery because the little light for my cat is getting a bit dim. So she's not as into it as she used to be. But I actually got a battery for a truck camper. So it's a solar generator. Plug the solar panels into it and uh, I can keep a microwave in a truck now. Wow. You are just so committed to accelerating the demise of the planet. Well, the truck is certainly not very good for the environment, but now I'm balancing it out by getting my power from a renewable source. For any of our listeners who missed the episode, we did talk about the comparative benefits and disadvantages of many different types of power and how even some of the more environmentally friendly sounding power sources can still have some problems associated with them. Although solar was towards the top of one of the ones that we said was pretty good. That's very true. Speaking of former episodes, if you are a longtime listener of Indubitably, over a year ago now, we did an episode on whether or not we should assassinate Vladimir Putin. And certainly that topic is still relevant. And in a way, we're going to be revisiting it again today. Are we going to discuss whether we should assassinate Putin again? No, I think that you and I already won that debate a year ago when we said that we probably should. And now a year later, given how the war has played out, I think that we have a stronger case than ever. So we're decided Vladimir Putin should be assassinated. We're not saying we think that, but that's just what the facts indicate. Well, realistically, in the last month with the coup attempts, uh, maybe coup is a strong word, but certainly factions of Russia's military mutinied against Putin. We might not need to be the ones to do the assassinating. No, no, no. We were never going to be the ones to do the assassinating. <laughs> well, whether it's us or not, and whether it's assassination or not, I'm curious to ask you a real question here. How long do you think that Putin is going to last in power over Russia? Honestly, until he dies. But you don't think that this most recent Ukrainian conflict has sort of pushed it past the breaking point? But the propaganda game is so strong. I actually, not to bring it back to TikTok, but I've been seeing TikToks from a Ukrainian person who shows video of the types of things that are discussed and shown on Russian media. And there's like no way that anybody's getting the full narrative. And people are absolutely team Putin across the country because of the way the information has been shaped. Mm, right, because to harken back to our assassination debate, this is definitely not the first war that Putin has thrown Russia into. Uh, for about a decade, between 1999 and 2009, Russia occupied the region of Chechnya. 
in 2008, they invaded the sovereign nation of Georgia. And even in Ukraine in 2014, they invaded uh, Crimea, which was a which was a region of Ukraine. At the end of all of those conflicts, though, support for Putin still seemed pretty high. Uh, this is the first time that even given what you're talking about with the propaganda, anybody has made a move against him. So who knows? Maybe this is finally the war that is bad enough for him to lose power. Or maybe that person who led that attempt knew that it was just going to get him sent to Belarus to live in a palace in comfort for the rest of his life. And that was the end game the whole time. <laughs> Very strategery. <laughs> well, so this war is certainly fucked up. But I think the question for today's episode is, is it possible for any war to be justified? Well, I guarantee you that if I were ever to wage any war, it would 100% be justified. <laughs> if you were going to go to war, Kelly, who would it be against? Every billionaire. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. As unreasonable or vindictive as I, and possibly to some extent Josh may be, we are not ultimately the arbiters of whether or not a war is justified. There is an agreed upon principle about whether wars are justified called aptly just war theory. Well, you say agreed upon, but I think what we'll be doing today is going through it and deciding whether or not that's true. Uh, there could be an argument made that no war is just regardless of this theory. Well, even if the theory is generally agreed upon, perhaps no war ever meets the criteria that it sets out. But just war theory has been largely accepted. I, I won't say it's universal, but it's been around for centuries and talked about in many different cultures about going to war when you have a legitimate reason to and otherwise not and how you behave and how you conduct yourself if you are going to go to war. Mm. So today we'll be talking about principally just war theory and what standards wars, according to this theory at least, have to meet to be justified and also taking that and applying it to some real world scenarios, Russia, Ukraine being one of them. Uh, and we've got others from recent and less recent history that we'll be exploring under this idea of just war theory as well. And so just war is like, oh, it's no big deal. It's just war. <laughs> I don't think that's why they named it that. No, it's it's just as in right, as in correct, as in the basis of principles of things like justice. Like Batman. Yeah. All right. So what, Kelly, what is just war theory? Just war theory is comprised of three different components. Juice ad bellum, which is the basis for whether or not you have the legitimate right to go to war. Jus in bello, which is how you actually conduct yourself in a judicious manner, I suppose, during the war itself. And then jus post bello, which is all of the stuff you would have to do after the cessation of conflict to do repair, restoration, and getting countries into a stable place when, when things are allegedly in peacetimes. And since they wrote it in Latin, we know that this theory must be true. Is that is that the point we're making here? Well, 
it is often referenced in places like law and law is largely Latin based, but I think we all have a little bit of disdain for the legal profession now and again. So I don't know how reputable Latin makes something. All right. Argument one against just war theory. It's in Latin. And therefore it is pretentious. It needs to get over itself. Indubitably. <laughs> all right. Before we get to the tenets of what qualifies a war as just, we should probably talk a bit about the underlying assumption of the theory. And, and that is, as I mentioned earlier, that there is such a thing as a just war. Some people might argue that under no circumstances would war ever be justified. Are these the same type of folks who are advocates of nonviolence, no matter what, more or less, no matter how provoked you are into a behavior, it is never appropriate to do that? Yeah, I think they're called hippies. Goddamn hippies. <laughs> or pacifists, I suppose. <laughs> Less negative connotation. But given the impact that war can have, maybe in this case, they kind of have a point. Is the argument then that because war has so much inherent violence to it, is so disruptive and destructive, that even if you have a quote unquote good reason, the costs of human life and being injured in the course of war are just too great no matter what. Yeah, especially considering that, and I suppose listeners can fact check me on this, but I, I feel pretty confident about it. The vast majority of wars have been waged based on ideological reasons. So you are directly, tangibly impacting people, whether it's literal loss of life, injury, destruction of homes, economies, etc., for the principle of democracy or the principle, this is the way that a country should be governed. These are the right kind of people or we deserve to own and occupy this land. Well, if you think of war as more of a tool, and I think that it is arguably a tool, just because some people use it with specific intentions that are less honorable than others, does that invalidate the usefulness or necessity of the tool wholesale? I guess throughout the episode, we'll talk a lot about the motivations that go into a war being justified. But right off the bat, my initial impression would be ideological, nationalistic, principled reasons, probably not good enough to justify war, in my opinion. We'll see if that changes throughout this episode. And I'd say, I think it comes down to what the principle itself actually consists of. Some principles are good and universally good. This is going to be an episode where the Scorpio in you comes out, isn't it? Almost every episode is. But <laughs> yeah, when we're talking about the specific motivation behind doing something aggressive, that's when I think I shine. <laughs> so ideological motivations aside, I do think that you can make a strong case for practical reasons for going to war, i.e., let's take an analogy here. Most people think that killing is wrong, but most people probably also accept it in cases of self-defense. Most people. Mm -hmm. And if you were to play that out on a larger scale, I think you could argue that if you feel as though you are being attacked as a country or a population of people, yeah, war is bad, but in self-defense, maybe it's justified. Well, the alternative would be if you have the ability to defend yourself, if you've been attacked and your civilians who didn't agree to be attacked are being killed in the process, not defending them would be as egregious a crime 
as actively choosing to kill other civilians. Mm. So you're complicit through your inaction. In some cases, I think that would absolutely be the case. I guess broadening this out to the scale of a population as opposed to a single person, if you were a pacifist, or I could imagine a, a Buddhist monk who says, hey, you know what? I am so committed to pacifism that even if I was being attacked, I wouldn't defend myself. I could see people making that choice. But if you were to consider this on the scale of a population, it's probably going to be pretty hard to find a group of people who all share that ideology. Outside of a commune, yeah. I think most people trust that their government exists to secure their best interests. Now, we're pretty cynical about that. We know why a lot of governments exist. All right. So there could be a group of people out there, pacifists, who say that war is never justified. But I feel as though the vast majority of people would accept, in principle, the idea that there's the potential for a just war to happen. So at that point, I think the rest of the episode is asking, okay, well, exactly what standards have to be met, as you said earlier, A, to initiate the conflict, B, to engage in the conflict morally, and then C, post-conflict, how should you act? Is that how we're going to break up the rest of this episode? I think that's how we're going to proceed. The first area we would address when we're talking about just war theory is kind of the order of events in which a war would happen, which is jus ad bellum, the actual legitimacy of engaging in war in the first place, the rationale behind war being an option that is acceptable. And that's basically, we don't like this whatever, situation, person, country, behavior, and we want to do something about it. Right. You have to go through and analyze whether the situation warrants war and only war. This doesn't just happen between countries. This happens at work. (laughs) I can imagine this happening with my coworkers. Somebody pisses me off. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yeah, definitely. Let's Let's give them a piece of our mind. Oh, wait, I thought we were just going to talk to them. You know, I am a Scorpio, if I haven't said it enough today. (laughs) So your standards for what constitutes a just war is probably a little bit more flexible than mine. Yeah, we'll see. Let's actually talk about what the criteria are for whether or not the decision to go to war is justifiable. Well, the most obvious one I think we've already mentioned, and that would be self-defense. And we started this episode talking about Russia and Ukraine. I think this is a perfect example of self-defense. Is Russia justified in going to war with Ukraine? I think it's not that hard to say no. But is Ukraine justified in engaging in said war as self-defense? I I would argue yes. Yeah, I, I firmly believe Ukraine doesn't really have a choice because they've been getting steamrolled by Russian tanks. Otherwise, they have an obligation to protect their civilians at minimum. The argument against this, though, to play devil's advocate here against just war theory, let's take the annexation of Crimea, another region of Ukraine that Putin went in and just sort of grabbed for himself. The argument could be made that if Ukraine had just said, hey, you know what? If you want it that badly that you're going to drive tanks and soldiers into our area in order to avoid bloodshed and avoid the deaths of our civilians and, you know, your civilians, too, we're just going to give it to you. That is an option. That is an option. And I think we'll be addressing that sort of question throughout the entire discussion of just war theory. 
part of what makes a war justifiable is if it makes sense. And if it if it actually is going to cost way less human right violations, way less civilian death to concede to an opponent, then maybe war isn't justifiable. So let's take this Ukraine situation a year into it, the amount of people that have been killed. Do you think that Ukraine made the right decision in fighting back? Or do you think that it might have been the right decision to just let Russia have what it wanted? I absolutely think that Ukraine's principle of self-defense is justifiable and that fighting back was the right call. Even though civilian death, even though the destruction has been really bad, I think the overall history between Russia and Ukraine and the idea that if Russia gets away with it in this instance, what is going to stop them from doing it further to Ukraine with additional territory or to other countries, the precedence it would set to just lay down and let Russia do what it wants would be so much worse, I think, for all other parties. And I think if we're talking about this particular example with Putin and Russia and his just mission of of attempting to restore the country back to its former Soviet glory, certainly we could argue that if he gets away with it in one case, he's going to try and do it again. And I think that that's probably backed up pretty well by what we referenced earlier. This is not a one-time invasion on Russia's part. This is a pattern of events. And every time he is successful, it incentivizes him to do it again. Exactly. There's so much historical context that goes into evaluating the behavior of an aggressor. And in this case, it seems like the most prudent option was to fight back. So self-defense in general seems like a fair option. You do, as a country, have to take into consideration what the cost of that self-defense is going to be. And I I could see a world in where letting the aggressor win as, uh, as dirty as it feels might be the right option. But in general... Self-defense equals justifiable war, and particularly in a case like this or a case where you feel as though you might be setting a dangerous precedent to guarantee you'll be invaded time and time again in the future, seems justified in that case as well. I'll add, you may have met the threshold for just cause, but that alone is not necessarily enough to call this war just. We'll get into it. There's so many criteria here. (laughs) But another aspect of determining just cause would be to evaluate other motivations behind going to war rather than just self-defense, which you alluded to when you were talking about principles earlier. And one of the things that has less agreed upon acceptability would be something like intervention in a conflict to which a country has no stake or apparently no stake in. So anytime America, for example, decides to liberate a country or liberate the oil underneath its sand, um, is that the right type of reason to engage in war? But the, the I'm imagining all of the Clint Eastwood movies where they say, hey, old man, this is none of your business. Well, I'm making it my business, <laughs> right? Whether or not a country has a stake in a, in a conflict can be sort of a nebulous thing. Right. There are a lot of ways that you can look at conflicts happening around the world and see how it actually is your business, even if you're not trying to make it your business. So an example that is not universally, but highly regarded as being a justifiable intervention would be how the U.S. 
slash NATO got involved in the conflict in Kosovo in the late 90s. Primarily, the justification was on humanitarian grounds because of the displacement and death of many ethnic Albanians. And that's a good example of where a treaty like NATO, which if you think about it, NATO literally exists to say, this is my business now, right? At its core, the principle is an attack on any country in NATO is seen as an attack on all countries in NATO. So does Russia's attacking Ukraine actually attack the United States? No, but something we'll probably talk about later, were Ukraine to gain admittance into NATO, then all of a sudden through this treaty, the U.S. is saying, we do consider this an attack on us. It's a codified example of we are making it our business, whether that's justified or not. Uh, I think that Russia would say if the U.S. does allow, <laughs> if the U.S. allows Ukraine into NATO, as if it's just the U.S.'s choice. Kind of is. Mm-hmm. Side comment. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think Russia would see that as political posturing more than justified allyships between countries across oceans. And I think the context of Europe is especially important here. Europe is relatively small as far as continents go, and the countries are very close together. And a lot of ethnic and cultural minorities spill over across many countries and borders. And the spillover effect of a destabilizing conflict in a small part of Europe could have very big ramifications for NATO member states. So I do see that there is a rationale behind the U.S. getting involved on those grounds for overall regional stability. And as hard as it might be to decipher what the real motivations are, that is the second tenet of just war theory here under is it justified to go to war? And that would be looking at the intentions of the party engaging in war. Were the intentions right? And these are where some of the standards of just war theory kind of blur a little bit because right intentions go so closely into the just cause rationale altogether. So when we look at stopping human rights abuses, self-defense, those seem like the right intentions. We generally do not like it when human rights are violated and protecting them seems like a really good idea. And yeah, that seems like a well-intentioned war. And we also don't like it, as you mentioned, when the human rights of oil are being attacked. Yeah. So there are a lot of people who get rich off of war. And there are a lot of people who have like lucrative contracts with private security firms that get contracted in in war. And maybe their rationale for going to war, their intentions for going to war are a little less pure. Even if we're being less jaded (laughs) than we obviously, I think by now listeners know that we have a tendency of getting on this podcast. What about, we mentioned earlier, ideological intentions? If a country is ruled by a dictatorship or a theocracy, and we as the United States or most Western countries agree that democracy is the way that people should be ruled, is that a right? intention for us to go to war, to establish a system of government that we think is best for the people inside of any particular country. Yeah, we love self-governance so much, we want to force everyone else to have it too. (laughs) Yeah, definitely a little ironic there. No, I, I think that was one of the best rationale intention lines that we got out of people, especially around 2003 with the invasion of Iraq, is 
spreading democracy across the Middle East, because that was the least obviously self-interested reason of all the reasons that there could be to go to war in Iraq. And it still felt kind of icky. Do you think if Iraq hadn't had oil or some of the uh, background of Bush Sr. getting defeated, et cetera, et cetera, all the political ties that existed there, if it had just been, here's this guy Saddam Hussein in a country that we don't have anything to gain from, acting as a dictator over his people, and we are going to go in and establish democracy, do you think it would have been justified? Like if we could separate it out from all of the garbage, purely that reason, do you think that would be reason enough to go to war, invade a different country? I'm inclined to say no. And I am also going to say, I think there are other aspects of just war theory that better describe why I would say no than specifically talking about right intentions. Because again, this is only a facet of just war theory. This is only a facet of determining if you have the right rationale to go to war at all in the first place. Hmm. Well, let's move to the next one then. Under rationale, we have legitimate authority. Do the people declaring war have the actual legal right and recognition to do so? Right. And this distinguishes a lot of aggressive actions globally from being a a war that is recognized and has actual terms of engagement attached to it versus things like insurrection or terrorist attacks or rebellion, separatist movements, what have you. More or less is a legitimate government the one who's actively choosing to do this. I think it's worth noting there that there is a whole separate conversation about war that pertains to asymmetrical warfare, right? Freedom fighters versus terrorist groups. How do we identify these people? The episode we have today is just war theory typically applies to countries going to war with other countries. So not to say that these other conflicts don't exist, but for the sake of this particular episode, I think, is it fair to say those are the ones we'll be focusing on? Yeah, absolutely. because. I myself might get pissed off about a lot of stuff, but I cannot wage war in the Middle East. I lack the legal standing to do so, and uh, frankly, the army. So, And you're just not Jason Statham, who can go and wage a war by himself wherever in the world he wants. We've clearly established I'm not an action hero. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry, Kelly. Sorry to break it to our listeners that might have (laughs) visions of us in their heads. (laughs) All right. So do they have legitimate authority? For example... In the United States, only Congress can declare war, but the president is the commander in chief, can sign executive orders, can put pressure on said Congress, etc. Various countries have their various rules over who has the authority to declare war, but for a war to be just, I think the point here is that some system has to be in play ensuring that it's just not a random decision by a random group of people. Is that the core of it? Yeah, absolutely. And another tenant of this aspect of just war theory is proportionality. The probability of success has to be taken into account if you are going to war and you are going to necessarily have a cost of human life involved. Are you actually reasonably going to carry out your objective here? Is it going to be worth it in the end? Furthermore, is the action of war ultimately going to cost less than letting whatever the situation is persist without the intervention of war. So like you lose 200,000 people in a war versus letting a genocide go unchecked and killing a million people. Those are the types of calculations that go into this aspect of proportionality. But that word is going to come up again. 
The challenging thing here is if you are successful in preventing further death, we'll kind of never know about it. It's a null hypothesis that can't be proven. The first one I'm thinking of is dropping the atomic bombs during World War II on Japan. The argument being exactly like you said, yes, we killed X number of people, but we might have prevented X number of deaths, second X being much larger than the first one. Intuitively, maybe that seems as though it was going to be the case, but we'll never be able to prove that. Maybe we killed a lot more people by dropping the atomic bomb than we would have prevented. You're right. It's an impossible calculus to determine whether a war is going to prevent more death than it causes in its implementation. Realistically, though, if we're talking about whether it's self-defense, ideological, what have you, that is a decision we just have to make the best version of it we can. Because the, the reverse is true too, right? Say you tried to stay pacifist, you tried to rely on negotiations, you tried to rely on diplomacy, etc., and you left yourself up to be attacked, the decision that you made to attempt to avoid bloodshed ended up leading and guaranteeing the deaths of people within your country, deaths of innocence. So either way, the choice that we make, we don't really know what would have happened under different circumstances. And, and people do try. There are analysts, there are people who actually did something with their poli-sci bachelors and can look at a situation and make projections about how many more people will potentially die if nothing is done in a particular context. Still, it, it is conjecture. Even with the best data possible, it's very difficult to know for sure. Are those the same people who said there's no way that Trump is going to win the presidency? Look, I was the polling. Nate Silver had us all fooled. <laughs> like he didn't know what he was talking about. Get it right one time and all of a sudden that's all we ever believe is him. Come on. Speaking of things like negotiations, diplomacy, etc., that leads us into the last thing that we're going to be talking about in this category of juice ad bellum, and that is, is war a last resort? Did you try all these other methods? Did you do everything you could to ensure that we are not just going to war willy-nilly, right? Did we, did we attempt to find a peaceful solution? Right. As tempting as it may seem, going to war immediately as a reaction to a specific trigger is not always the right measure. It's not never the right measure. Like there are times when you're provoked into war and you know that there would be no possibility of something like negotiations or sanctions in order to put enough pressure on another country to behave differently. But for the most part, there are so many options that a country can exercise in order to try to alter behavior, especially a country like the United States or China or the United Kingdom. They have so many resources, so many allies that they can persuade to treat a specific country differently. Like all of these things exist that can be utilized before they necessarily have to go to war. And that's especially true as the world gets more and more intertwined. There are more and more ways and tools at our disposal to influence the actions of other countries before we have to resort to this. And Russia might be an interesting case study there because of how isolated it is. If you were to compare it to China, for example, and Taiwan, you know that China wants to invade Taiwan so bad, real bad. But the interconnectivity between China and the United States puts some pause to that action. Russia has kind of to its own detriment, I would argue, but 
made itself a rogue isolated actor and therefore we have less tools to use to stop it from going to war with other countries and here we are right and this type of soft power or other types of influence that a country like the United States has may not even necessarily apply to a specific situation we have no idea how many wars have been prevented because countries decided to check their own behavior for fear of risking the wrath of the United States So there's a very clear power structure internationally that has bearing on how other countries conduct themselves. And if you get to the point where you have to go to war, there usually is uh, not many other options available to you to try to prevent it in any way. Or in the case of a Scorpio, when you get to go to war, and that leads us to the second part of just war theory, which is juice in bellow. So You've met the threshold for waging a justified war. Now, how are you allowed to behave in the war itself? So many rules. So many rules. The first rule of which is discrimination. Oh, no, are we going to be racist in war? Well, probably. But like, is that the kind of discrimination we're talking about when we're talking about behaving in a conflict? Damn hippies. (laughs) So discrimination in a, a conflict is to distinguish, I would say is probably a better word, between what a legitimate military target is versus what is just a thing in that country that probably has no bearing on the conflict itself. So targeting a munitions factory is probably a legitimate military target. Targeting a children's hospital, I would say is probably not a legitimate military target. I don't know. Some of these wars last a long time. Some of those kids are going to grow up to be adults. So you heard it here first, and indubitably, Josh can justify killing children. No, that's not me. I'm role-playing Putin. (laughs) Discrimination is an important concept when we're talking about conduct in war. However, there is an acceptable, and it feels gross to say it, an acceptable number of civilian deaths that may incidentally happen in a war, as long as they are not specifically targeted, sometimes they're unavoidable. For example, if you're bombing the munitions factory, the people who serve coffee in the luncheon room probably didn't have anything to do with the manufacture and distribution of those weapons. They may just have to be an unfortunate casualty of war. The, the more hardcore proponents of war might argue that if you are supporting the war in any way, you are part of it, and that would disqualify you from having civilian status. There's not necessarily a rule about where the line can be drawn for this is a civilian, this is not a civilian, as far as people who are tangentially related to the war efforts go. Right. There's a lot of dispute over whether being in that country at all is somehow engaging in the war by being like a taxpayer. There's varying degrees of involvement, but it's still generally accepted that probably a hospital full of sick children in that country are not engaging in active combat. Mm -hmm. In the case of Russia and Ukraine, there was a period of about a week or so where fighting was taking place around a nuclear facility. That presents another interesting conundrum. Obviously, power supports, nuclear power in this case, supports the war effort of one of the countries. So do the people who work at that power plant, are they civilians? Are they involved in the war? And then also just the scale. If if that power plant had been destroyed, 
the effects of the fallout would certainly have impacted civilians. But the fact that that would be indirect, would that be on Russia's shoulders to bear that blame or not? Those are the debates that happen even with the principles laid out here. The domino effect of any sort of action that is taken in active combat reverberates out to civilians almost invariably, to different degrees, of course. But an an action of killing another soldier could cause irreparable harm to that soldier's mother. Like, at what point are you causing specific harm and direct harm versus indirect harm? Well, that kind of breaks down this theory. It's making just war theory kind of seem less and less useful if it can't lay out in clear terms what is and is not okay. What is and is not okay in war is probably a lot like pornography. We'll know it when we see it. So speaking of fallout and unintended consequences, we're back to the idea of proportionality again, this time under the topic of how do we carry out the war? and. Again, I think back to the nuclear weapons dropped on Japan and the fallout from that. How do we decide if that was proportionate or not? Or again, looking back to the first time we talked about proportionality, how do we decide whether that cost or saved more lives? Exactly. There has to be a calculus carried out about whether or not the type of thing being checked by an aggressive action is being checked by the appropriate amount of aggressive action. So when it comes to the issue of Japan, a lot of people do argue that that led to the end of the Second World War. But a lot of other people argue that it was a massive amount of unnecessary civilian death for a country that was already on its way towards surrendering to the Allies. And in more modern times, the other example that comes to my mind where the idea of proportionality is cited pretty often, is the Israeli conflict. There is certainly a criticism of Israel that its actions are almost always disproportionate in response to the kinds of attacks that they suffer at the hands of Palestinian slash Islamic slash Middle Eastern antagonists. Really? So you think that if a kid throws a rock in a crowd full of Israeli soldiers and then gets mowed down by IDF gunfire, that that might not be a, a proportionate response to that act of aggression. No, that, it's hard to defend some of Israel's actions to be sure, but to take something more reasonable, when a member, we'll use the term loosely, of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or or similar group, launches a rocket at Israeli troops, what's the right degree of response one rocket in return but okay, that's so that's not what happens no it's not but there's an argument here that would suggest and this is the argument that israel makes that if they send a rocket and you send a rocket you're probably going to get another rocket sent at you pretty pretty soon but if they send a rocket and you fire five back you've effectively squashed the chances of them attacking you again so Israel, as one example, is intentionally disproportionate as an actual strategy of war to ensure further attacks against their people don't happen, or at least they're less likely to happen. And I think that takes us back to not only whether proportionality needs to be upheld as a concept 
but the idea of the the probability of success. So if the overt disproportionate response from Israel ultimately means that fewer people die in the long run, that actually constitutes a proportionate response because it led to the reduction in overall future deaths that occurred. But in the moment, it may look very disproportionate and aggressive. Right. And in this case, there's another argument for why disproportionality would be justified. Uh, In Israel's unique situation, they see themselves as one country surrounded by potential enemies. And if they don't display this kind of, they would call it strength, through disproportionate responses, they think, as we said earlier, that they might be setting a precedent that would open them up to a existential attack in the future. So proportionality in this context might be a little bit more difficult to define than it initially seemed, because it's not just about trading gunfire in any specific context, but it could be about the larger overall picture of what that conflict could look like if there is not an immediately disproportionate response. Mm. One of the things that's going on in Russia, Ukraine right now is Putin, because he's crazy, has suggested the possibility of bringing nuclear armament to the battlefield. So one of the other ways to think about proportionality is not necessarily one rocket for one rocket, but if the war is taking place at a certain level, for example, we are firing rockets back and forth at each other, that's one level, and then one country decides to put soldiers on the ground and physically invade another country, they've escalated it, and then escalation, escalation up to potentially nuclear warfare, that's another way to think of proportionality. Generally, you would have to have a really good reason to justify why you're going to level up the war from whatever stage it's currently at. This might be one of the more complex standards to evaluate in this whole thing. In general, this theory is is difficult because it's trying to lay out some sort of objective standards for when war is justified and when it's not. I suppose it's not unique to this theory, though. As an international community, we're trying to take all sorts of different types of people, governments, religions, philosophies, and standardize it in some sense. And Another way we try to do that would be another standard of just war theory that we're moving to, which is you should not conduct war by any intrinsically unethical means. So the international community has laid out certain standards that they would like us to believe everybody agrees are wrong. And I'm saying that with a little bit of skepticism, but I think we could accurately say that the vast majority of people agree that these things are wrong. Right. They do agree that a lot of these things are wrong. That doesn't mean that they're not utilized. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But what are those standards that we would consider pushing a conflict into an unethical level? Things like torture? Yeah, we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We have the Geneva Convention that applies specifically to the carrying out of warfare. Avoiding torture is certainly included in both of those. Things like sexual violence, genocide, biological weaponry, etc. However, this is where maybe just war theory falls apart a little bit because of the nature of international law being so unenforceable. Almost every country that outwardly agrees in things like the Geneva Convention or has signed on to the Declaration of Human Rights, some of them still do a lot of this stuff. 
Uh, they do it on black sites. They do it sneaky, sneaky like. But uh, the U.S. alone has been accused of conducting torture a lot in a lot of its conflicts, justifying the quote unquote ticking time bomb scenario as a reason for the legitimacy of something like torture. But the prosecution of this sort of thing is pretty rare. So there's not a huge disincentive to do it. We brought up our justification for going to war with Iraq earlier and bringing democracy to the people of the country was one of the legitimate reasons that were given. And the other legitimate reason that was given was exactly this. We posited that Saddam Hussein had and was using biological and chemical weapons that violates these conventions that were universally accepted. And therefore, we had another justification for going into the country. So Yes, it's very difficult to enforce some of these standards, but there are examples of where we have taken action based on people violating them. Sure, when it suits us. I think that the selective enforcement of international norms is another problem of the fact that there is no global government. So we we do our best. We decry torturing prisoners of war we decry torture in and of itself but it's it's probably still happening as we speak i guess maybe a, a more accurate way of of making our earlier comments is it's very difficult to enforce these standards unless it's a smaller country in which case we can make them do whatever we want yeah can the us get away with torture obviously can china get away with biological weapons genocide obviously russia obviously Iraq, not so much. Well, a final standard when we're looking at how a country or other legitimate actor engaging in war must behave is that it, it does come down to a certain degree to the individuals themselves and how they behave, and that following orders is not a defense against the criticisms of their behavior. Even if a country has waged war justly, that doesn't mean that individuals necessarily have. And we see this all the time, individual soldiers being put on trial for war crimes. The biggest example of which that I think set a lot of the stage for how we looked at this sort of issue in the latter part of the 20th century would be the post-World War II Nuremberg trials. In that case, I think that the misaction was from the top down. Soldiers were being ordered to do particular things. And we said that that is not a justification for breaking these conventions. But also sometimes soldiers take it upon themselves in conflicts to treat civilians or treat enemy combatants in ways that uh, just, I guess, seem fit to them at the time. This is a standard that applies to leaders and the soldiers themselves. Essentially, every single person who engages in a conflict on behalf of a country still has a conscience and should know should know right from wrong. So if they are given an order that asks them to do something that is blatantly outside of the norms of ethical conduct in war, they should, as an individual, resist that command and refuse to carry it out. Obviously, that's a big risk in a lot of countries, especially with any authoritarian rule that could, in some cases, cost them their lives. But the expectation is, that is not a defense if they're put on trial after the fact from being mm, executed in Nuremberg's case. I think that this second section, as we wrap it up in terms of how do you act during war, 
is related in a lot of ways to the first section. What I mean by that is if your motivations to going to war are justified, it's going to be things like attempting to minimize the amount of harm, attempting to protect people, right? Attempting to establish a precedent that keeps everybody safe. So if you keep those things in mind as you are conducting the war, the decisions that you make on the ground should follow suit. And the things that are considered universally to break codes of conduct in war are things that would not fall in line with those kind of motivations. What justification do you have for going into a town of civilians and torturing the people there, treating women and children in particular ways, doing things to enemy soldiers who have already given up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in a lot of ways, there's this whole mentality of we are in war because we have to be, and we should be striving to do the minimum amount of damage possible to achieve these justified means that we have set out. Exactly. And as far as the standards for a just war go, these first two categories, I think, are the most obvious and the most analyzed, debated, understood. But one area that I think is severely neglected in just war theory is juice post bello. Basically, what happens after the war has ended? Do you just literally and figuratively peace out and let people pick up the pieces on their own? Or do you engage in participating with the restorative efforts to make sure that wherever this war occurred, people are brought back as close as possible to an unharmed state. And I don't think that there's any more obvious example for this than the United States' efforts in the Middle East. And in so many different ways. But I think we can talk about them in a lot of the different aspects of the sub-criteria that go into conducting yourself after a war is concluded. So the first such category is status quo antebellum, or which is trying as best as possible to bring about the conditions that were in that country prior to the conflict happening in the first place. Well, let's take the United States into Iraq as our first example. If our motivation, let's let's give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. If our motivation was Saddam Hussein is a dictator, we would like to remove this dictatorship. I think that status quo antebellum would suggest that after the conflict is over, we want Iraq to look like Iraq used to look like, except under a democracy instead of a dictatorship. But remember that building that used to be over there? That building is still there. Remember this marketplace where people used to go and do their shopping? That marketplace is still there, except instead of a statue of Saddam in the middle of the marketplace, they've got a voting booth. I guess I agree with the overall idea that you should, had you broken something, make an attempt to put it back together. That's what they tell me in the toy store. That's why you're not allowed in anymore. So you don't listen. That was a long time ago, okay? Mm-hmm. A long time since you've been allowed to go in. I know. I know. <laughs> the second standard of this last theory that we're talking about relates to what we discussed uh, previously, which is punishment for war crimes. While the conflict is going on, it's very difficult to police the actions of the soldiers, leaders, etc. involved. Once the conflict is over, efforts should certainly be made to rectify any violations of these international standards that may have happened. You brought up Nuremberg already, Kelly. I think that's a good example of it. Right. It does not happen 
as much on an international scale like that, because rarely do so many countries agree on what norms were violated and how to enforce them. The bigger emphasis seems to be on individual countries policing the conduct of their own citizens who engaged in illegitimate behaviors during war. If a war is justified and the conduct within the war is justified for the most part, addressing when the behaviors go outside of the norms of war must be a necessary part of the aftermath. I'm not sure how many of our listeners might be aware because it's just not likely going to happen anytime soon. But in the current Russian-Ukraine conflict, the International Criminal Court in The Hague has actually issued an arrest warrant against Vladimir Putin. So technically, he is charged with war crimes. Well, good luck arresting him. Yeah, and and that's kind of the the challenge here, uh, at least during the conflict. But arguably, Was Ukraine able to win this conflict? Was a mutiny potentially able to be successful inside of Russia? Do you think that there's any world where Putin would stand and face these charges at The Hague? I think that if Russia loses this conflict and perhaps loses beyond just this conflict, a lot of uh, international standing, I think he would go underground. I think that we would never see him again. I'm imagining one of those Old West movies where Vladimir Putin rides off into the sunset on one of his bears. It doesn't seem like a really like high quality of life, but um, he probably would want to remain alive at all costs and outside of a tribunal. Plotting his return to power. Right. So we have punishment for criminals. The next stance is compensation for victims. And we've said it through the whole episode. Really, it's the point of the episode. War sucks. There's no way, whether war justified or not, to conduct war without people being victimized. And the type of victimization that takes place is some of the most extreme that we can see in any aspect of our society. So are we going to be able to compensate people in all ways for what they suffered during the war? Certainly not. But I think that it's important that at least some effort is made. It's difficult in some contexts because the type of compensation that would be appropriate would be maybe addressing the fact that people lost family members. And how do you possibly give someone enough cash and property to make up for that kind of loss? But if they lose their homes, if they lose assets, possessions, resources, that is something tangible that we can make an effort to replace in kind. Another big deal in terms of compensation would be things like truth and reconciliation commissions. Obviously, we can't bring people back to life. And obviously, money, property, materialistic things can't make up for the wrongs that are done. So I think for a lot of victims, actually, hearing the perpetrators say, hopefully authentically, that they understand what they did was wrong, that they are sorrowful for it, might be the best form of compensation? That could mean a lot to a lot of people to just have their pain acknowledged. I'm a little more um, grudge-holdy than that, so I don't think that would satisfy me, and that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. But there are a lot of people out there who are way better people than I am. And we see this oftentimes when, not in war, but at a criminal trial, something like a murder has taken place, and a family says, hey, 
We don't necessarily want the murderer to get the death penalty. We don't necessarily want them to be in jail for life. We just want to know that they understand now that what they did was wrong and that they're sorry for it. Not not Scorpios, but those people do exist. Yeah. Damn hippies. Sounds like a real Pisces behavior. <laughs> a little bit more related to war. I'm thinking of the situation of apartheid in South Africa, where we have a large scale conflict. It wasn't, again, it wasn't a war, but the, a conflict in the country between two populations of people. And after this had concluded, the offer was made to the perpetrators that if you admit what you did to give some sense of closure to the victims, you can avoid jail time. And so there's an entire country of people and an entire system that did decide that, hey, the way that we want our compensation is not going to look like retribution. It's not going to look like monetary payments, but it is literally going to look like just recognition and understanding and truth and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And it's ultimately up to the victims to decide what would be restorative justice for them. We don't really get to decide that, oh, you know, like a million dollar cash payment takes care of the fact that you lost your dad. That's not really the calculus we get to make on behalf of other people. Mm. And I think after all of that, it brings us to our last consideration here. The war was justly started. It was conducted justly. Afterwards, punishments and recompense was handed out appropriately. All of that is done. The biggest consideration here at the end is let's make sure this shit doesn't happen again. And that leads us to peace treaties. Hopefully, fair, mutual agreements between parties that are sustainable, address some of the issues that led to the conflict in the first place, and hopefully forestall a reemergence of hostilities. Right. These have to be done pretty carefully. I'm thinking in particular about the situation that emerged in Germany after the First World War, where things were so punitive that it very much led to the discontentment in Germany that led to the rise of Hitler, who who preyed upon that national sentiment that they were being victimized by the rest of Europe. So you want to try to be as fair as possible, even against countries who maybe had behaved really horribly. And as we said, all three of these things tie together. The intention at the end of all of this is to minimize conflict. And I guess just war theory puts out this position that potentially engaging in conflict to a certain degree and in a certain way in the long run minimizes conflict and minimizes harm. So if we ensure that those are our motivations going into it, we ensure that the way that we conduct the war doesn't lead to excessive damage, and we ensure that the way we win the war or reconstruct societies afterward help us guarantee that the situations that led to war in the first place don't come about again, then we have a quote-unquote just war. Is that a fair summary of the uh, episode and the theory so far? I think so. And that, I think, leads us back to a question of, are there wars that are then just? So do we think that this theory is legit or BS? That's what you're asking me. Or if the theory is legit, can anybody actually meet these standards in practice? Mm. Yeah, that's a good distinction because I would say that the theory in and of itself is valuable. 
in my opinion, but practically implementing it might be impossible for two reasons. One, principally, there is a lot of subjectivity running through this theory. And literally, when we were talking about is a war, these two sides are unlikely to agree with each other on anything, much less, is this particular person a civilian or an enemy combatant? Not sure. Did this particular action cross the line of proportionality or not? Not sure. And I think that if there can't be any agreement on those aspects of it, principally, cool theory, practically, to me, not super useful. I think it's useful because even if you do not get to a war that is perfectly just under all of these criteria, I think you give countries uh, a blueprint for getting as close as they can, knowing that there are all of these factors they may not be able to distinguish for themselves. I think you, with the first principle, give countries pause, let them take into account whether or not they should go to war in the first place, whether it's a valid reason. Second, you do have some guidelines for conflict, and we do see that, generally speaking, the way that people conduct themselves in war now is better than it was previously, even if it's not great yet. And then finally, talking about the aftermath and the responsibility of a country that invaded or waged war to not just leave a country in tatters. We we talked a lot about the U.S. and the Middle East in general. And I think through this episode, we focused mostly on Iraq. But as far as post-conflict decision-making goes, maybe Afghanistan is another interesting um, conversation to have and and potentially a large enough topic for an entire episode in and of itself. So if you as a listener are interested in hearing us dissect that issue, you should definitely let us know on our social media accounts at Twitter and Facebook at IndubitablyPod. And I think we'll probably have the ability for you to put some comments on our Spotify episode link as well. As has been our habit over the last few episodes, along with uh, the polling. And I think for this week, what should we be asking, Kelly? Can war be justified? Should Scorpios be allowed to engage in war altogether? Should being a Scorpio disqualify you from being commander in chief of an army? I think asking whether or not there is the possibility for a war to be fully just is a good question to explore. And I'd love to hear if people have examples of wars that they do consider completely just, fully justified, well conducted, and the aftermath was addressed appropriately. Mm. So do all of that. Rate us, comment us, poll us subscribe us all the things all of the stereotypical social media things we do appreciate it when you do and if you don't i don't know might be a justification for us to go to war just you know take a good long hard look in the mirror consider what kind of person you want to be if you don't want the indubitably army to come for you (laughs) it's just full of cats me kelly and our three cats (laughs) 